through 1 Kings, and we're this morning going to be in chapter 9, verses 10 through 25. 1 Kings chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 10. There it says, at the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold, as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they called the land they called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord in his own house in the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer. And lower Beth Haran and Baloth and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah. And all the store cities that Solomon had. And all the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen. And whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. These Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers. They were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. Let's pray. Lord, as the moon reflects the sun, so may these words really just be a reflection of yours. May we hear you speaking and not just a mere man. Lord, guide and direct us that we may understand and apply your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, how did we get to this point? That's often a question asked by people who are in the midst of a chaotic life. And they look back at the prior events when everything seemed better. It's the question asked by historians. They try to piece together the people and circumstances that led to the current situation. And investigating the past, what is interesting is people often find that what led to the horrible situation today was not some big dramatic event, but something that was seemingly inconsequential then led to everything else and where we are today. You've probably heard the poem, For Want of a Nail. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Things that seem 
so insignificant. One little horseshoe nail, and the whole kingdom is lost. It poetically captures this idea. Little actions can then lead to massive consequences and ramifications. Well, we're almost at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9, which reads, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, when did that turning begin? Was everything just fine until the beginning of chapter 11 when he began to multiply wives? When did the multiplication begin? Was it at that moment, or is that just when it was included? Was Solomon completely devoted to the Lord and then one day wake up and go, I'm going to start having many wives? No, rather, as we've gone through 1 Kings, we've seen that the author has given hints, suggestions, indications before this point that though Solomon mainly served God, there were things that seemed amiss. As we've gone through, we've used the illustration of a movie, and in a movie early on, they may show a screw or a bolt that's loose, and you see it jiggle, and then they go away. But throughout the movie, they keep going back to that, and you keep thinking, that's going to be a problem. They're foreshadowing what's going on. And in Kings, we see foreshadowings of what have happened. What have some of the screw jiggles been? Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, he married Pharaoh's daughter. And if you did some comparison as we did then, he actually already had another wife. So he was breaking the clear implication of Genesis 2 that marriage should be between two people. And also the specific command of Deuteronomy 17 not to marry many wives or acquire many wives as a king in chapter 4 verse 26 we read that he had 40,000 stalls for his horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen yet Deuteronomy 17 warned not to gather many horses the screw appeared to be jiggling and then as we are looking at the temple the story is going and then it paused and told of Solomon building his own house that took six years longer than building the temple and was way bigger than the temple. And in all this, the author did not say, and Solomon was wrong, and yet it seemed to be a hint, a suggestion that maybe something is amiss. And this morning, we now come to the middle of Solomon's reign, his middle years. He's been in power for 20 years. He's going to have 20 more. And as we go through this, we're going to see some things that he does that are very good, the type of things that a king should be doing. And yet we're going to see some other things that, raise eyebrows and go, is Solomon still pursuing the Lord? Is he still faithful? And I believe the author put these to be those rattling screws to show that it wasn't just a momentous, dramatic turn in 1 Kings 11, but there had been things going on in his life that led to that point. If you like to follow along an outline, there's one on the back of the bulletin. Verses 10 through 14, we're going to raised the question, was there some unfair economic deals? And then in verses 15 through 23, did Solomon have misplaced priorities? And then verses 24 and 25, consider his wife and worship. But in 10 through 14, we're kind of given a summary of the past and then indications of new things. Because back in chapter 5, we'd heard that King Solomon, when he became king, Hiram, king of Tyre, had sent ambassadors saying, We are so excited for you that you become king. And then Solomon proposed the deal. Hey, I want to build a house for the Lord, and you have wonderful cedar trees and cypress trees. So how about I send whatever you want, and you send me trees. And they came to an agreement. And here, 
It's noting that agreement still going on, and Solomon is now also being given gold. Well, Solomon, in response, gives Hiram 20 cities. Seems quite generous. And yet when Hiram goes to investigate these cities, he calls them Kabul, which means worthless or nothing. He even says, Solomon, why would you do this? My brother. Like, we have a relationship. Wouldn't you give me something better than this? And then, it's interesting, it says that Hiram was sending gold, and then it says what Solomon gave him, and then after that, verse 14, it says how much gold he gave. It, like, saves this detail to make even worse what Solomon did, and that is that he gave him 120 talents of gold. As I did a little research, my note says a, a talent of gold is 75 pounds. I believe it says 120 pounds. Yeah, 75 pounds. So this is 9,000 pounds of gold. If you do some research, as I did, at least of March 10th, a pound of gold is worth slightly more than $25,000. So Hiram sent him $225 million worth of gold. And what did he get back? 20 cities that he didn't like. What is going on? What should we make of the portion of this story? Well, again, I think the author is showing us that the screw is rattling again, and now in the realm of economics. You know, how we spend, how we buy, are integrally, integrally related to our spiritual life. And let me show two ways that Solomon seemed to be failing the test now. First, Solomon should have not given these cities away because they actually are in the tribal territory of the tribe of Asher. These were not his to give in the first place. If you look back at chapter 9, verse 7, when God responded to Solomon's prayer and the dedication of the temple, there he says, I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. This is promised land that God gave them. This is land that when Joshua came in, God told Joshua in Joshua 1.6, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I am giving to them. To the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And yet Solomon just gives it away. Not to an Israelite, but to a foreign, a Gentile king. This will be shed in even worse light when we get to 1 Kings 21, because there, King Ahab, who is an Israelite, wants to buy a vineyard from a man named Naboth. And Naboth responds, and he says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. It was like a shock. I can't give you this land. Now, there's a whole theology of the land of Israel that we don't have time to pursue, but in essence, the land was always to stay within the tribe and the family. And that Naboth would not even give it to a king who is an Israelite makes us really wonder, Solomon, what are you doing giving away the promised land to a Gentile? But then it's even worse. It's not just that he gave away land. He gave away land that he didn't really want. And that's the second thing. It's a little vague, but Solomon fails the test of loving generosity. 
Even if you could say, and I don't think you can, but if you could that Solomon could give those cities, this would appear to be a bad faith gift. Now, this is a challenge with a lot of scripture. We're not told. Perhaps Hiram is wrong. Perhaps Hiram does not appreciate these cities and they're really great and he's just an unappreciative person. However, the context of 1 Kings seems to show the error is more on Solomon's part, that he's not being loyal. Even the wording Hiram uses, you're my brother. Why would you give this to me? And while the Bible's honest, I don't think it paints people negatively when it shouldn't. And we're left with major questions that paint Solomon negatively. Here, Solomon, though, is not being generous. And if we start to apply this to today, we quickly run into a problem. And that is, in America, we often confuse what is legal and with what honors God. I have a book, it's a very helpful book, Ken Sandy wrote, it's called The Peacemaker. And in it, he shows what is legally permissible is not always right for Christians to do. He quotes the former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia who wrote, what is lawful is not always right. Confusing the two concepts is particularly easy for the English speaker because we use the word right to refer both to legality and to moral appropriateness. We say, I have a right to plead the Fifth Amendment and refuse to answer questions about possible criminal activity, even when the consequences of exercising that right may cause an innocent person to be convicted. Exercising such a right is certainly wrong. Sandy himself writes, when exercising a right allows you to avoid a moral responsibility or to take unfair advantage of others, you have not acted justly in the eyes of God, regardless of what a court may say. Therefore, always strive to exercise only those rights that would pass both a legal and a heavenly review. The basic principle to follow at all times is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Solomon has seemed to move from the beginning of his relationship with Hiram where he said, I'll give you anything, to now, I'll give you what I don't want. And we're seeing Solomon's economic life showing that his spiritual life is maybe not all it should be. Now next week we'll see Hiram is upset, but he'll still continue economic trades with Solomon because it's so beneficial. But Solomon's issues are not just with Hiram. For now, we wonder, does he have misplaced priorities? And we see that in verses 15 through 23. And in these verses, the author details the labor force that Solomon used to build all of the things that he had built. And in there, it talks about how he enslaved some people. And we talked about this in some detail in chapter 5, and I'm not going to rehearse all that, but basically I want to remind us that the Bible unequivocally says the slavery that happened in the United States was wrong. That almost everything we did here was immoral. And yet at the same time, the Bible often talks about slavery in a different type of concept, more like indentured servitude. And so we have to be careful when we read ancient documents that we don't take the way we understand a word and always put it onto that document, whether that's the Bible or something else. But since we covered that at length, I'm not going to cover it again. That was chapter 5, if you want to go listen to that. But here, the author tells of the other building projects Solomon undertook. And many of these, if you go and look up the geography, are on the important trade routes or the borders of Israel. 
And so Solomon is doing a good thing. If someone were to attack your nation, they're probably going to come on the easiest road. So for Solomon to build places for chariots, to build storehouses, to allow good trade so his people can prosper, this is him acting as a king should do, and we should honor him for what he did. And yet, though it's good to protect your people, and it's good to provide trade for them, it seems that maybe he allowed what was good to overshadow what is best. What is best is to always obey God's word. And notice verse 21, because there we read of people who are in the land who were unable to be devoted to destruction. Now, we have to remember some things about Solomon. We'll see next week, he was able to establish international trade. We read in chapter 4 that Judah and Israel were blessed throughout the land, that they ate and drank and were happy, that they had peace from the Euphrates to Egypt to the Philistines, and that they brought tribute to him. We mentioned earlier how many horsemen and chariots had. He had the best, the most advanced military weapon chariots. And yet, there's some people in the land that supposedly he can't drive out. The interesting thing, though, is look again at verse 16, because Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is able to come and drive some of these people out. Well, how come Solomon, who is the most powerful, most rich person, can't drive someone out, but Pharaoh can come up from Egypt through Israelite land and do what Solomon should be doing? Well, it seems like Solomon has allowed what is good to distract him from what is best. It appears that these protected cities of trade, which are good to do, have distracted him from, I need to do what God has called us to do. And it's not as though he was just building essential things like walls and fortresses. Because in verse 19, it tells him building through all of Jerusalem, even in Lebanon, outside of Israel, and all his dominion. And then it adds whatever he desired. So these are not just needs. He's now building all his desires. And sadly, we too are pulled and tempted by the same problem, that we get distracted from the best by many good things. We devote ourselves to providing education, activities, clothing, entertainment, and vacations for our children, which are all good things. I hope you're doing those things. Yet in the hustle and bustle of it all, sometimes we have to stop and go, are we raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? Or are we so busy that we don't have time to study God's word together, to be together with God's people when they meet? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says singleness is a blessing when you use that singleness to serve. Is your singleness being used in that way or are you allowing good things that a single can do to distract you? In our retirement years, we have extra time. Are we using that extra time and money so we can be a blessing? Or are we using that for ourselves? So we have to honestly assess what are we doing as you consider another venture, maybe another grad class, another side hustle, another club for your child, another purchase. We have to consider, will this good thing keep me from the best things I'm called to? Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying your schedule should only have religious things in it. That's I'm not saying that at all. Rather, what I'm saying is we have to be honest and assess. Am I keeping 
the main things, the main things in my life? Or are these secondary things squeezing out what should be my primary focus? Now, some of you probably didn't hear anything for the last five minutes because you're still caught on verse 21, and rightfully so. You're wondering, what about these people who are devoted to destruction? Why in the world would God ever want people devoted to destruction? What's going on? How can a loving God tell people to go and kill other people? This doesn't make any sense. Isn't this genocide? How in the world is this in the Bible? And how can we be people who would want to read a book like this? Well, let's begin by turning to a passage that instructs us. So keep a bulletin, finger, something in 1 Kings 10. But we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And then a little foreshadowing. We're going to flip to Genesis 15 as well. But Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because we're going to see where this was first commanded. And try to understand why would God ever command a thing like this? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you devote and you defeat them, then you most devote them to complete destruction you shall make no covenant with them and shall no mercy to them you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of the lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly but thus shall you deal with them you shall break down their altars and dash them in pieces their pillars and chop them down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. So the commands to Israel, whether we like them or not, are rather clear. They're to devote some nations to complete destruction. Now I say some, we could look at Deuteronomy 20 where there's how they should deal with cities and nations that are near and how they are far, and those are not completed, are given to complete destruction. But why is God commanding them to do this? Well, verse 4 gives part of an answer and then there's another answer that's kind of implied throughout but verse 4 says well look if you lead them they're going to then cause you to go astray and yet that's just part of the answer because the deeper implied answer is that God commanded this as a judgment for sin hold your finger there and turn to Genesis chapter 15 in Genesis chapter 15 God is reaffirming his covenant with Abraham to give Abraham land, to give him descendants, that he'll be a blessing. And in that, he tells him, look, you're actually not going to have this land now. For 400 years, your people are going to go off. They're going to be in another land, and then I'm going to bring them back. And then he says why in Genesis 15, verse 16. And then he says, there he says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of, of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God planned in history that the sins of these people, the various people mentioned in Deuteronomy 7, would get so bad that they should be destroyed. And yet, that wasn't going to happen for a couple hundred years. So God was going to bring Israel back 
to be his agent of punishment when their sin had gotten so bad. But flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 because we need to see something very important. And that is, it is not just that those nations were committed to destruction. Rather, that a devotion to destruction is against any person or nation that sins. The wages of sin is death, not time out. This is clearly implied here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse, we see that in verse 4. Because God told them they should not intermarry because that would cause them to turn to God. And then what would God do? God would destroy Israel. This devotion to destruction is not just that they hate these other tribes. It's for all who sin. And this is said even clearer in verse 26 of chapter 7 in Deuteronomy. Because there it says, And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. In other words, those who are devoted to destruction is not just the tribes in Palestine. Those who are devoted to destruction is every person who has sinned. Every person who won't turn from their sin. And we see this even play out in Israel's history. Because God tells them, go into Jericho, devote it all to destruction or it will happen to you. And when they don't devote it all to destruction, the destruction starts happening to Israel through the sin of Achan. Thus, to properly wrestle with this serious question that I hope we all go, these verses are hard to understand, we have to really wrestle with the question of, is God allowed to judge his creation? And part of the problem here is we have lost the idea of what sin is and who we are. If, as the Enlightenment attempted, we begin with man being basically good and we're the most important things in the universe, then this is horrible language. It's horribly wicked because man's rights, man's goals, man's desires and ambitions are what matters. And in this mindset, look, we're all basically good. We have a few mess-ups here and there. But definitely nothing deserves the type of language talked about in the Bible if you have that enlightenment viewpoint. R.C. Sproul even says, from this mindset, we're not really surprised that God has redeemed us. Somewhere deep inside in the secret chambers of our hearts, we harbor the notion that God actually owes us mercy. You owe us grace, which is the exact opposite of what grace means because grace is undeserved favor. However, if we begin with the fact that God's our creator. And as the creator, he deserves the rights. He is what should drive our goals, our desires. And his rights and desires and our ambitions are what matters. And man's rebellion ruined his goodness to us, then that changes things. Because man, what do we do? We lie about God. Because we're to reflect him as his image. Man, what have we done? We doubt God. We say, your word's not true. And man, what do we do? What do, we, do? we rebel against God. We don't want to live the way you tell us. I'm going to live my own way. And what do we call that when someone does that to someone they owe allegiance to? Treason. Listen to what the U.S. Code 2381 says about treason. Whoever, allowing, owing allegiance to the United States, levies war against them or adheres to their enemies, giving them even aid, 
and comfort within the United States or elsewhere is guilty of treason and shall suffer death. That is the penalty, the ultimate penalty. Now it also lays out other things we could do to punish someone of treason. But even in our country, we recognize to be treasonous against the one you owe allegiance to is worthy of death. So why would we think that's owed a country, but if you do that against the creator of the universe, well, you'll just get a little tap on the wrist. No big deal. We, he owes us forgiveness. He, he doesn't need to punish us in any way. And yet God's punishment for sin is not just because of treason. His punishment for, love is all, for sin is also because of his love. Becky Piper writes, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, she writes, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. The whole irony of this situation is the reason we feel uh, anger that God would say this is because of the Bible in the first place. The, uh, The Enlightenment tried to come up with Let's understand humanity. Let's understand this world by ourselves, their own reasoning. And yet they begged, borrowed, and stealed the Bible's concept of love. You know, there are no international war tribunals for lions as they massacre gazelles. No one is going, this is genocide. We can't believe this. Because they're just animals. That's what they do. Well, if all we are is just more sophisticated animals. Why does it matter if I wipe out a whole another tribe of animals? We don't care anywhere else. No, I'm not saying it's right in any ways, but there's no logical foundation for saying without the Bible that genocide is wrong in the first place. And it's only because of God's amazing love that said, I don't want you to be devoted to destruction, so I will take that destruction and I'll place it on my son and he'll be devoted to destruction because I love you, and now you should go love others, people then turn around and go, God's not loving. And yet the only reason they understand love is God's love that would take that devotion to destruction himself. And so here, though it is very challenging, though we should wrestle through it, God is not in any way being unjust or unloving. He's being the righteous, holy creator of the universe who says, when you create treason, I'm going to call you to account and i may do that in a thousand years i may do it through a flood or i might do it through a nation but any one of those is my right and prerogative as the creator of the universe and to bring it back to now and so for solomon to go eh, but i don't really want to do that because i'm more excited about building storehouse cities and i'm more excited about advancing my trade routes is to show that solomon is beginning to slowly move away from the Lord. And we see good and bad though in the last two verses. So to go back to First Kings chapter 9. We see good and bad in his wife and his worship. Verse 24 we hear about Pharaoh's daughter having to leave Jerusalem. 
and the house that Solomon built for her there. Now we first read of this marriage alliance in chapter 3, and then in chapter 7, verse 8, as it was describing Solomon's house next to the temple, we read that they built a house for Pharaoh's daughter there too. Yet now, for some reason, she can no longer live in this house. She needs to go live somewhere else. Well, we're given more information in 2 Chronicles 8 because there it says, Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he built for her. For he said, My wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel, for the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Now, I'm going to just say I'm baffled. I don't understand. It makes no sense to me why Solomon would build a house by the temple for his wife if he knew then as soon as the Ark of the Covenant got there, he was going to move her out. I don't understand. I don't understand why he would say she is so unholy that she can't live near the temple, but it's okay for me to marry her. I'm not giving any answers. I'm just at a loss at what's going on. I think generally it's not painting Solomon in a very good light. On one level, he is still trying. Hey, I want to preserve the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. That's good. And yet on the other hand, he's doing things that forced his hand to have to act in this way in the first place. And yet we are provided a very good picture of Solomon in verse 25, for he is three times a year bringing sacrifices to the Lord. Now most likely this matched the three times a year that Israel was called to celebrate. You can read of these, Exodus 23, the Feast of unleavened bread where they remembered when we were in Egypt we ate unleavened bread because we were going to have to go out in haste because the Egyptians have sent us out because of God's work or the feast of harvest when they would first get the fruit of the field they would have a harvest thanking the Lord for what was going to come or third the feast of ingathering when the feast had all been gathered in they would come and give thanks to God for the harvest that year and in this respect Solomon is a shining example of faithfulness to his people he's leading them in the worship of god that they should be doing yet this also serves as a warning because if you only go to worship with your feet and your heart is not there eventually your feet will stop going too yet at this point most israelites are probably thinking externally solomon's doing a great job he's leading us in worship we have great trade routes. We got protection. Everything's going great. What could go wrong? And yet, little fissures, little cracks are appearing in Solomon's life that are going to rupture in chapter 11. What about you? Are you excusing, rationalizing, minimizing attitudes and actions? Because, well, look, I'm doing well in other places. Do you tell yourself, that, sure, this might be wrong, but my situation's different. You just don't understand. If you knew how much good I was doing over here, well, then you would understand that that kind of gives me some allowance to not be so good over here. This week, I listened to this woman share as she grew up in a Christian home. And she loved the Lord, yet as she got into high school, she really wanted the approval of her peers. So she started hanging out and spending time with people who were partying and living an immoral lifestyle. And as she was with them, she became pregnant. And her dad, a pastor, said, this would be too much trauma for our family and the church. So he drove her two hours south and had her get an abortion. 
And yet while there, she says that he later said, I sat there the whole time looking around the abortion clinic and looking at all these people going, how disgusting that this people would do this. But our situation's a little different. And that's what we often do. We go around condemning, but you know what? It's okay for me because my situation's a little different. God understands my situation. That's why it's okay for me to have this stuff on the side, to have these attitudes, to treat these people that way because I, I'm really good. And if you understood my whole situation, you would understand too. Yes, I kind of leave work early. I'm often doing stuff at work. That's a side job. But you know what? It's for my family. And when I leave early, I go to help my spouse. So it's okay, isn't it? Yes, these jokes are really inappropriate, but I get to be with these people, and then I'll get to share the gospel with them one day. So I can laugh along because they'll accept me. It's okay. Well, hey, you know, I know this website has lots of stuff on the side that tempts me, but the article is so good. I can't read this good article somewhere else. So who cares? It's okay. It's not a big deal. And yet we're seeing in Solomon's life, the man who had the most wisdom in the Old Testament, it is a big deal. Run with endurance the race that is set before you, casting off every weight and entanglement so that you can run to the end. Don't let the faithfulness of your past allow you to make you complacent today. Don't assume faithfulness gives you an excuse for sin today. Don't assume that just because it's something small like a horseshoe. What's a horseshoe nail? That's so inconsequential. Well, for want of a nail, you might lose the kingdom. Let's pray. Oh Lord, each one of us is so prone to rationalize, so prone to be quicker to judge others than to take that hard look at ourselves. And so Lord, would you by your spirit work in us that we would desire to put sin to death would we recognize what an affront it is to your holy character oh lord may we then out of your great mercy and love that forgives such sinners as us go out and show that same mercy and love to those around us it's in your merciful son's name we pray amen